The book of the Bible that we've been studying together over the last year plus is called Luke. It is named for its author, who was a a physician who was intent on writing an accurate account of the life and teaching of Jesus. And he was doing this for the benefit of a man named Theophilus, who we don't know a lot about, but uh, was uh, writing to Theophilus to convince him that Jesus was reliable and trustworthy, that what he had heard about Jesus was true, and therefore that he should live for the glory of Jesus by following him in every part of his life. Today I'll be reading the final passage of Luke 18. This is Luke 18, verses 31 through 43. And after I read the text, I encourage you to keep your Bible open as we'll be referring back to the text over and over again throughout the sermons. You'll be served well by looking at the text repeatedly. Please follow along silently as I read aloud from Luke 18, 31 through 43. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. In the fall of 1992, a man named Eugene Pauly was at his home in Los Angeles preparing for dinner when his wife mentioned that their son Michael was coming over for dinner that evening. Who's Michael? Eugene asked. Your child, said his wife, Beverly. You know the one we raised together? Eugene looked at her blankly. Who's that? He asked. The next day, Eugene started vomiting and writhing with stomach cramps. Beverly took him to the emergency room where his temperature quickly climbed to 105 degrees and he eventually slipped into a coma and for the next 10 days was very near death. Once he had recovered somewhat, and was healthy enough for a battery of tests, doctors warned Beverly that she likely would not know her husband again. She would not recognize her husband's personality, that he would probably be a very different man. And this warning came to pass. Once he was well enough to go home, Eugene couldn't remember which day of the week it was or who his friends were. He had trouble following conversations. He repeated himself often. Some mornings he would get out of bed, walk into the kitchen, cook himself bacon and eggs, go to bed, fiddle with the radio, put the covers over his head, and get up 40 minutes later and do it again. And then get up 40 minutes later and do it again. Eventually, Eugene and Beverly moved to San Diego to be closer to their daughter, 
And after moving to their new home, Beverly took Eugene out for walks each day. Some of it was to fight the claustrophobia of living with a person who repeated himself over and over again. Some of it was because it was good for her, him and for her to get exercise. So morning and evening, they would take walks together, always at the same time of day and always the exact same route so that he could learn the route and so forth. But one morning when Beverly was getting dressed, Eugene slipped out the front door. He had a tendency to wander from room to room. And so it took her for a while, it took her a while to notice that he was gone. And when she did notice, she became frantic. She ran outside and scanned the street, but didn't see him. She went to the neighbor's house and pounded on the windows, then ran to the door until somebody finally came to the door and they hadn't seen him or heard from him. Eugene wasn't there either. So she sprinted uh, back to the, back up the street, running up the block, screaming Eugene's name. She was crying and he was gone. Our passage today is about blindness. Eugene Polly wasn't a blind man, but he lost his way. Spiritually speaking, we all have lost our way as well because of a condition that the Bible describes repeatedly in this passage, but several others as well, as blindness. And as Michael read for us this morning, we live in a dark land, spiritually speaking. Yes, that was talking about an actual physical land in that passage in Isaiah 9, but spiritually speaking as well. We live in a dark land in our own hearts. And so the reason we need the passage before us today in Luke 18 is that we, just like Eugene, have lost our way, but in a far more impactful way. It's not that we got lost going for a walk around our neighborhood. We lost the truth. We lost a vision of who God is. We are lost in our sin. That's why we need this passage because the fundamental truth of this passage is really quite simple. simple. Just by reading it, you probably grasped the big idea of this truth, and it's that Jesus gives sight to blind people. Did you gather that? You probably, I mean, it's like just from reading it, you can tell. This is about Jesus giving sight to blind people. But you might be thinking, the percentage of blind people in the world is very small. And even for those who are diagnosed with some form of blindness, they can have surgery. They can wear glasses. They can get all kinds of other technological helps in our day today. And so how does this truth actually help us as a room full of people who, generally speaking, are not blind, at least with the help of glasses, not too blind? But as we read this passage, perhaps you noticed as well that Jesus isn't just addressing physical blindness. He does address physical blindness in this passage. But the passage starts with the far larger and far more comprehensive problem of spiritual blindness. And so in verses 31 through 34, Jesus addresses spiritual blindness. This is significant because this is the condition that all of us are born with is the inability to see the truth about God until the Holy Spirit illumines our hearts. And you notice that Jesus takes the twelve and he says we're going up to Jerusalem. Now, if you were writing a commentary or a book that talks about Luke and you wanted to write it in two volumes because it's a really long book, where would you divide it? Well, it's 24 chapters, so you divide it after chapter 12, right? right around chapter 12, right? Trying to hit it kind of somewhere in the middle at least. Maybe find where the middle, you know, where the, where the middle verse is and break it there. Actually, if you were going to write one, 
you would probably want to stop at chapter 9, verse 50. And then the second volume would be chapter 9, verse 51, and you go all the way to the end from there. Why would you stop at 9, verse 50? Because in 9.51, the whole book turns on a hinge. And that's when Jesus says, I'm setting my face to go to Jerusalem. And from then on, there's every three or four chapters a reference to Jesus saying, remember, we're going up to Jerusalem. But the disciples simply did not understand why they were going to Jerusalem while they were walking this journey together. Yes, he's doing amazing things along the way. That's what we're seeing even in this passage. But why is he going to Jerusalem He's going there to pay for sin. He's going there to deal with the problem of spiritual blindness. We see this in verse 31. We're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And even that that word accomplished makes us think of a variety of other passages. Even back to chapter 1, verse 1. The things that have been accomplished, Luke says. This is what we're writing about. The same thing is true in chapter 9, verse 31, and in chapter 12, verse 50, and, in, and here. Jesus, in other words, is going to Jerusalem by divine plan. What's going to happen to him in Jerusalem is not an accident. It's what was talked about back in the prophets, he says, and they're all going to come to pass. What does he mean when he says that everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets Will be accomplished. What did the prophets say exactly about him? Let me just read one reference and I'll tell you several others. But one is in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, where Isaiah writes, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. That sounds like the verse that Jesus has in mind when he describes what the Son of Man, his favorite term for himself based on Daniel 7, 13, and 14, what the Son of Man will receive, what will happen to him. So he's, I think, very likely alluding to Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. He's probably alluding to all of Isaiah chapter 53, talking about what's going to happen to him. And you notice here in the ESV, it accurately reflects the fact that in Greek we have five passive verbs in a row. So things that are going to happen to Jesus. And I was talking to my wife, the English major among us, about why Jesus might have spoken that way. Why didn't he just say, they're going to do this? And in doing so, this is my wife's theory, uh, it was drawing attention to him. Not the generic they who's going to do these things in the future, but the person that they're going to happen to. And so he describes... Uh, The fact that these things will be accomplished. It's a future passive. Who's going to accomplish it? Well, ultimately, it's God by the Son through the hands of evil people. For He will be delivered over in verse 32. Who's going to be delivered over? Jesus. Who's going to deliver over? It doesn't matter. He's drawing attention to Himself here. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Of course, we know from other passages that we'll see in a few months. Uh, chapter 22, chapter 23, he'll be delivered over by the Jewish authorities. But ultimately, under the sovereign hand of God, the book of Acts draws that out for us. He'll be handed over, he'll be delivered over under the sovereign hand of God. Who will he be delivered over to? To the Gentiles. That's a term that just means people who are not Jewish by blood, by nature, 
But generally speaking, in the Bible, they're often Gentiles, which most of us are in that category, are often referred to simply as synonymous with ungodly people. And that's what he means by that here. Ungodly people will have Jesus delivered into their hands. And after they receive him, after he will be delivered over so that God's work can be accomplished through him, he will be mocked. Another passive verb. Who's doing the mocking doesn't matter. Who is being mocked is what matters. He will also be shamefully treated. He will also be spit upon. And Luke walks us through these details later on, and even the ones that he doesn't refer to, like I don't think he specifically refers to the spitting, but the other Gospels do, and maybe Luke doesn't include it because he knew that his readers, particularly Theophilus and others among them, knew that this happened, and that it was fulfilling Isaiah 50, verse 6. So notice all these things that will happen to Jesus and then you have this, this next, this participle, and after flogging him, so it's not uh, written exactly the same way as these previous passive verbs were, but it's drawing attention to the fact that something else is going to happen to him too. They're going to tie his hands to a pole with a bare back at least, and then they're going to whip him for a long time. And other passages tell us how many times they hit him. So he was completely bloodied. After they do that, they will kill him. But then notice, this one's not a future passive. This one's just an active verb. He will rise. He takes things into his own hands. No longer is something happening to him. He is coming back to life. And there is no one in the world who has the power to stop that. Again, as I prayed from the book of Acts, Paul directly says, to his audience in a public speech, in a very large gathering of people, why is it thought incredible to you that God can raise the dead? He is the God of the universe. Of course, he can do this. And this is why Jesus can speak so confidently that he will rise on the third day. What this passage doesn't tell us is why he will do this. But we know from the rest of the Bible why he does this is to restore fallen humanity. People that were made in the image of God but who rebelled against God. And so what's implied by the rest of the Bible in this case is Jesus is going to have these things happen to him so that fallen sinners can be restored to God. Rebels can be made friends. Enemies can be made beloved. Those who are far from home can be brought home all through the work of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. And if you are unfamiliar with this, we'd love to answer your questions about it. If you are familiar with it, but you would say, I just don't know that I want the claims of Jesus to rule over me yet. Like I'll, I'm happy to submit to Jesus when I'm on my deathbed and kind of get my, my ticket punched to eternal life. And I would simply say, Don't take that risk and don't treat Jesus who was delivered over and was mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and flogged and killed. Don't treat him so lightly as to say, "Mm, I'm going to live my life how I want to live it and I'll get right with him later. That's blasphemous. Repent now. Turn from your sin now and receive the hope of the gospel. What's amazing though is that he's saying this to the group of 12 of his closest followers and they simply don't get it. And Luke wants you to know that. 
And he wants you to know that so deeply that he says it three different times in verse 34. Look at what those three ways are that Luke made sure we get the message that the disciples did not get the message. They understood none of these things. We get the point, right? Luke can stop right there. He doesn't need to say anything else. They didn't understand what he said. Just like they didn't understand it the previous times that he's predicted this in the book of Luke. But he goes on. The saying was hidden from them. Okay, now you've said it twice. I think we get the point. But he says this one differently. This one's passive as well, which makes you think this probably is saying the Lord Himself kept them from seeing the truth. Just like we're going to see probably in April in Luke 24 that the eyes of the disciples on the road to Demaeus were blinded in a sense that they could not understand what Jesus was saying, that they didn't even understand who it was that was walking with them. These are disciples. These are not people who had never seen or heard of Jesus before. These were followers of Jesus walking with Jesus on the road and they didn't understand it was Him. Why not? Because it was kept hidden from them in that passage in Luke 24. Here it happens again. This saying was hidden from them. The Lord Himself, I think, was prohibiting them from understanding these things. And so then Luke just wraps this up with a third way of saying they didn't get it. They did not grasp what was said. It's not that they couldn't understand the linguistics of what Jesus said. They understood even the verbs that Jesus used. And maybe even the verb tenses that Jesus used when He explained what was going to happen to the Son of Man. They just couldn't quite reconcile what you hear in Luke or in Isaiah 9 about this one who will be the Prince of Peace, who will be the Mighty God, the Wonderful Counselor, and you hear these amazing prophecies about the Son of Man. How can those things be true if He's going to be flogged and spit upon, treated like He's despicable? They couldn't get it. They couldn't comprehend it. And that reminds all of us that we have blind spots. We may get most of the truth, but there are parts of biblical truth that we really wrestle to get our hands around. Or maybe we're not even aware that we don't have our minds wrapped around these truths. This is why we need one another. Church membership and discipleship and discipline alert. Like, here's your little siren that this is going to go off now. This is why we need each other, okay? This is why we need to know what's going on in each other's lives. This is why we need to let other people into our lives. We typically do that not in a worship service. We do that in a generic way in a worship service. We do that in a personal way by having a cup of coffee with one another or by having people into our home and asking questions, or by sitting down for Bible studies or counseling or a number of other gatherings so that we can see each other's, so we can help each other see their blind spots. You might not think you have any. I say this every time I talk about blind spots, but maybe there's somebody here who's never heard me talk about blind spots. You may not think you have blind spots. That's because you're blind to them. There, you can put that on Twitter if you'd like. This is kind of like In the movie Ratatouille, it's an animated movie, and there's an old crotchety lady who has a rifle. I believe it's a rifle. And she also has a rat, and she does not like that rat. And she sees it climb up into the rafters of her house, and so she wants to shoot the rat. 
And she shoots so inaccurately and so many times that the ceiling completely collapses under the weight of the thousands of rats that were living in her attic. And she didn't know there were any up there. She was blind to that reality. She hadn't been listening, evidently, to the pitter-patter above her while she was sleeping. She was blind to that fact. Now she's not blind to it, and they're all around her. And that's how the movie gets started. So go watch Ratatouille this afternoon. Did you know that you have rats in your ceiling, spiritually speaking? And you may not know it, but other people do. And this is why we practice church membership and why we practice church discipline so that we can help each other with the rats in the ceiling. Jesus addresses spiritual blindness. In verses 35 through 43, Jesus heals physical blindness. Jesus heals physical blindness. Jericho is mentioned here in verse 35, which is about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So they're heading toward Jerusalem from Jericho. 15 miles northeast would basically mean if you walk down Joliet Road and just keep going in a straight line, you'll walk into Soldier Field eventually. That's 15 miles away if you're walking. That'll probably take you a few more miles if you're driving with the zigs and zags. But basically, walk towards Soldier Field. You can now picture what it's like to be from Jerusalem to Jericho. And they're heading there, or they're, they're drawing near to Jericho, and while they're walking through, you imagine Jesus surrounded by his disciples and by others who say, that's that guy. We've heard about him. And so maybe now there's dozens of people. Could there even be hundreds of people? We don't know. But there's enough of a crowd that a blind guy could tell something was going on. Uh, there was a time I was in a library in South Carolina, and all of a sudden there was an uproar out in front of the libraries at Furman University. I was studying there because in theory it was quieter than the library on the campus where I was a student. And so I was at this library. Well, all of a sudden there was a ruckus out front. Everybody in the library got up to go see what the ruckus was. Well, no longer was it the quietest library in town. But that being said, there was enough commotion that you knew something was going on. What it was, I have no idea. I never found out. But the blind man wanted to find out what the commotion was. He knew something was going on, even though he couldn't see it. And so he, he asked, what is going on? And they respond, well, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. No more introduction needed. Why not? Because he had heard the things Jesus had done. He had heard the teaching. He had heard about the, the dead son who had been raised back to life back in chapter 7. He had heard about how he had allowed a prostitute to wipe his feet with her hair. He had heard about, and, and, and in so doing, offer her forgiveness and life, where everyone else in society had just said, you're dead to us. You're despicable. You're an outcast. He had heard about him saying, let the children come to me. And so this guy's like, this is my golden ticket. This is my opportunity. Maybe he had even, in hearing about Jesus' miracles, thought to himself, if he ever walks by this way, and I'm going to sit on the main drag in town so that he'll come by here, if he ever does, I'm going to ask him to heal my blindness. Because as you read the passage, it doesn't say, like it does in other passages, that he was blind from birth. Sometimes we read that in various passages, like John 9. I think Luke would probably have told us, as a doctor, that this guy was blind from birth if he had been. So I think what we're seeing here is a guy who, like all of us, can see, and then all of a sudden, maybe because of an accident at work, can't see, and here comes the person who can change all that. And so he calls out to Jesus, but he doesn't just say, Jesus of Nazareth, 
as they've just introduced him. He's more than Jesus of Nazareth. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Where in the world does that title come from? I don't know exactly why Clayton chose Isaiah 9, but this is like my third time to refer to it in this sermon. So in Isaiah 9, it says that the son of David will come from right, like from this land, enter into this land of darkness. He'll be the prince of peace. The government will be on his shoulders because he's the son of David. So there's one place they get it from. Where is Isaiah getting it from to write about it in Isaiah chapter 9? He's getting it from 2 Samuel 7. Where David says, God, you're amazing. I want to build you a house. And God says, thank you for that, but I'm actually going to build you a different kind of house. It's a family tree of sorts. And what it's going to look like is at the end of that tree is a king who's going to sit on my throne forever. We know his name is Jesus. All David knew was that's an amazing promise, which is why he responds in the second part of 2 Samuel Seven with an amazing and beautiful prayer, which is also captured in First Chronicles 17. So this title, Son of David, simply means that he's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the one that Isaiah chapter 9, for instance, talks about. Even back in Luke 1.32, the angel Gabriel speaks to Mary, Jesus' mother, and he says, the Lord God will give to this baby who you're about to become pregnant with The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So Jesus, in other words, is the son of David. And so this blind beggar figures that out on his own time, thinking through, well, if he can make the lame to walk and make the blind to see, truly this is the son of David, truly this is the Messiah who's going to rule in peace and righteousness forever. So his request is pretty point blank. Have mercy on me. He's not complicated. He's not saying, and if you do this, I'll pay you back in some way. I deserve this. And here are the seven reasons you should heal me. He just says, have mercy on me. That's his request. And no one else liked it. Why would they not like it? Well, because they also didn't like children coming to Jesus. They also didn't like women coming to Jesus. They didn't like People coming and saying, my child has just died. They kept getting in the way of people getting to Jesus. And Jesus overheard it, though. Evidently, the guy, though his eyes could not see, his voice could work quite well. And so Jesus, over the the ruckus going on around him, could hear, somebody's calling out for me. And whoever it is knows who I am if he's calling me the son of David. So he says, who was that that just called out to me? So they bring the blind beggar to him. And he says, what do you want? This is a beautiful question. What do you want me to do for you? Maybe Jesus already knew. We don't know. Uh, Again, this is one of those moments where he's fully God and he's fully man. So did he know what people were thinking and saying? And in certain cases he did. In certain cases it seems like he didn't. But either way, he's getting this guy to confess his need. To acknowledge, I have a problem that I can't address. But I believe that you can And it was that belief. This is not generic faith. This is not like some of the ridiculous things that people say, well, I have faith that such and such will happen or that so-and-so is still alive even though they're clearly dead. People have faith in all kinds of things. Jesus is saying, no, your faith is clear and it's in the right place. The content of saving faith is that Jesus is the only one who can save you from your sins. And this man understood that. 
And so he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. He understood that Jesus was the only one who could deal with this problem as well. And so Jesus responded, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, which again is the point of Luke, that if you see that Jesus is God, that he is the only Savior, then you joyfully give your life to following him and to doing what he says. Jesus is doing this. He's healing this man because it's part of his mission. Back in Luke 4.18, I would encourage you to look at that again sometime because after all these sermons since that time in September or so of 2021, since I started preaching that, that passage, it's been a minute since we've been there. So go back and read Luke 4.18 where Jesus kind of lays out his mission in a, in a nutshell, maybe we could say. He said in a sermon in his hometown of Nazareth where people are like, isn't this Joseph's son? Who is this that's saying these things? He says that the Spirit has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. He has sent me to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he gives sight to the blind. This was his mission. He had come to do this, to show the world that he was the expected, the long-expected Messiah. We see here God doing the impossible. Just like in last week's passage, we saw uh, God is able to give salvation to anyone, even those who think that, that we think are the least likely to receive it. God is able to give salvation to anyone. He can do the impossible because He is the God of the impossible. He made everything out of nothing. He can raise the dead. So, of course, He can give sight to the blind. But here He is doing the impossible and He's even showing mercy to those who are deeply aware of their need for that gift from God, from Christ Himself. And maybe you have been wondering whether Jesus would still perform this kind of miracle today, whether he still does, whether he answers our prayers in a way that that shows that he can still answer miracles. So in other words, if I have a child who's born blind, should I pray that God will miraculously give him sight? Uh, If I know someone who is diagnosed with late stages of leukemia or someone becomes through an accident, a quadriplegic, should we ask God to reverse those problems? Sure. No problem. I have no problem with you asking those things. I, I guarantee you, if I go home today, my wife says, my doctor just called, I'm dying of cancer. I'll start praying for a miracle, okay? And I think you probably will too in a similar situation in your own life. But what we need to realize is that should we, you know, in the direct question, should we expect God to answer those requests? My answer would be maybe but probably not yet. And I'm not saying not probably not. I'm saying probably not yet. We as Christians put our hope in the fact that yes, all of our maladies and our disabilities and our disorders and our physical health issues and mental health issues will all be dealt with when Jesus makes all things new. And so when we read Isaiah 35 about what it's going to be like when the Messiah rules over all things, What we see is that he'll do things like giving sight to the blind and making the lame to run like a deer, someone who cannot use his legs like a quadriplegic. Those things will happen. Could he do that 
without Jesus returning yet? Yes, he absolutely could. That's what he's showing. He has this power. He can do the impossible. But we also, as Christians, need to have the perspective that sometimes he doesn't give us our answer in our timing. So we can pray for God to work in miraculous ways to heal our loved one from cancer or, or paralysis or blindness or any other problem. But ultimately, our hope is in the world that is yet to come, in the world that is being prepared for us. This week, I heard a song called Someday at Christmas. I don't recommend it, but maybe you've heard it. Maybe you know what it says. But uh, I, had, I don't think I had ever heard it before. At least, I don't remember hearing it before. It never, the, the, the lyrics, at least, had never hit me before. So some of the lyrics, uh, the, the, the song talks about a world where there is no more hate, no more war. It was written during the Vietnam War. And so it talks about a world where, where men don't play with bombs the way that kids play with toys. And it talks about a world where there's no more hunger or poverty. And as I listened to the song, I thought, that sounds like a wonderful world. And they're basically saying, someday at Christmas, maybe not in time for me and you. Like, we probably shouldn't expect the reformation of humanity to completely come to pass in our lifetime. But it'll come at some point. That's what that song is teaching. And what I would simply say is, that world will come one day. But it's not because we talk about it. We talk about peace more than war. Because we smile at each other. Because we give food to homeless shelters, all good things to do. But that doesn't bring about the reformation of our wickedness, of our evil hearts. And so we long for a better peace-filled world, but that comes because Jesus himself returns to earth and establishes his kingdom of righteousness. And so we pray, even so, Lord, come quickly. We recently received an update letter from our missions partner, the Simeon Trust. We specifically support the Chicago course on preaching. Two weeks ago, Jeremy Meeks, the director of the course, uh, preached here. Uh, But in this uh, letter from the Simeon Trust, kind of updating how their ministry is going and what our funds are helping support around the world, um, one of the pastors who attended, they recently, I'll put it this way, they recently hosted a Bible exposition workshop in Vietnam. And so they've been doing more workshops in more difficult-to-reach places over the last year or two than they've ever done before. Typically, they do them in big cities like Chicago and Philadelphia and Sacramento and so forth. But uh, here they did one in Vietnam, and they said that one of the pastors who attended took a 10-hour bus ride to get there and said the workshop was revolutionary to his ministry. He lives in a district where there are about 70 churches without pastors. That's super discouraging. Like, I know of like five in this area that don't have pastors. I'm sure there are more than that, but I know of about five. In a single district in Vietnam, there's 70 churches that need pastors. And most of the pastors this man who rode the bus 10 hours knows are untrained. Like, they're just getting up on Sunday without having any idea what they're talking about. And this was the experience I had when I was teaching um, the doctrine of Christ in Peru about five years ago. Like, most of these pastors couldn't read And they were the ones who were the most educated to get up and preach the word to these Christians. Think of the hundreds of churches that could be planted if they had more pastors, even just in that one district in Vietnam. So the Simeon Trust thinks of their work in Vietnam as part of a bigger narrative. God is increasingly moving them into hard-to-reach places. So David Helm, the director of the Simeon Trust, 
writes, In hard places with few Christians, we believe the best way to reach more people for Christ is by equipping local pastors and Bible teachers. They are inherently equipped with language and culture. So equipping them with culturally transferable tools to study and preach God's Word is an incredibly effective way to promote the growth of the gospel. So why am I reading this? Because the Word of God is what God the Spirit uses to give spiritual sight to people who then will be transformed from the inside out so that they can then teach other people the Word of God, who can then teach other people the Word of God. And I want to encourage you, if you want to know uh, what God is doing in Vietnam, I would love for you to watch this DVD called Dispatches from the Front. Our missionary Tim Cassie and Frontline Missions put this together. They've done something like 13 or so of these DVDs. Who would like to watch this one? I'm going to hand it out. I would love to get it back. I would love for you, Della. I would love for you to hand it off to somebody else who can then watch it, who can hand it off to somebody else who can then watch it. But uh, your heart will be thrilled at what God is doing in Vietnam. And I brought another one just for kicks because the title of my sermon is I Once Was Blind, based on, I hope it's obvious, the passage. And this DVD, also the same uh, series, episode three is called I Once Was Blind. So who would like to watch this one? It's about uh, God working in West Africa. So somebody's going to take this home today and watch it, uh, the ALARs. And so this one is also just a tremendous blessing to watch, and I hope it will really encourage you. So I'd love for you to watch it with other Christians, if possible, and then pass it off to other Christians, and then pass it back to me eventually. Uh, Those DVDs are just wonderfully put together. Again, the reason we're saying this, the reason I want you to see what God is doing, is because what these two stories in particular, but every story you hear about what God's doing in various places around the world, it's exposing that God is giving spiritual sight to spiritually blind people. And that should encourage you deeply because only God can do that. This is why we support the Lottie Moon offering and the IMB. This is why we support frontline missions. This is why we seek to share the gospel here in our own community because spiritual sight is only given by God himself and he uses the work of the Holy Spirit through the means of the word of God to give that sight. And so how did people who receive physical sight respond? Verse 43, he recovered his sight and followed Jesus. Just like you would expect. And he was glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And if you want to have a really edifying afternoon after you watch a really edifying DVD, Go through the book of Luke and get a highlighter or a colored pencil and underline all the places where you see things like they blessed God, they praised God, they glorified God, all the people rejoiced, all the people celebrated. I mean, it was over and over and over again. I'm not even going to give you the list of references I had because I think you will love to do that exercise yourself. People praise God when they see that God gives sight to the blind. Beverly Polly was crying as she ran back into her house to call the police. This was like 1993 by this time, so she didn't have a cell phone on her. She had to run back home in order to call the police. When she burst through the front door, she found Eugene in the living room, sitting in front of the TV watching the History Channel. And she was crying, and her tears confused Eugene, and he didn't remember leaving, he said. He didn't know where he had been, and he couldn't understand why she was so upset with him. I'm just watching the History Channel. And then Beverly saw a pile of pine cones on the table, like the ones that she had just seen in a neighbor's yard down the street. 
She came closer and looked at Eugene's hands, and they were covered in sap. Eugene had gone, walked around the block, as he had every other day with her, wandered down the street, gathered some souvenirs, brought them back home, and flipped on the TV, and he had found his way home. Again, Eugene Pauly wasn't blind, but he had lost his way. We too have lost our way, but in a far worse way. We are spiritually blind, but we never find our way home unless the Good Shepherd gives us the gift of spiritual sight and takes us all the way home. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we simply, like this blind beggar, give you praise for the work that you're doing, the work you have done, and the work you will do. Amen.